0: Hi there, today we're going to talk about sinus rhythms, ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, and torsades de to point. To begin, we'll just go into talking about the six different sinus rhythms. Uh, there are six different sinus rhythms that we'll have to know about. The rhythms are going to be normal sinus rhythm, sinus bradycardia, sinus tachycardia, sinus arrhythmia, sinus arrest, and sinus exit block. So going over these really quickly, actually going into just a couple quick things that I think is important to keep in mind. Just knowing that a normal PR interval is gonna be 0.12 to 0.2 seconds, and that the normal QRS is 0.06 to 0.1 seconds. Later on, you know, when we go through more AV blocks and we talk about those kinds of things, but the importance in knowing those PR intervals and QRS complex length here is that these sinus rhythms are all gonna have a PR interval between that 0.12 to 0.2 seconds and a QRS complex interval. Uh, between 0.06 and 0.1 seconds. So all of these things that we're going to talk about, they have these abnormalities and differences, or maybe abnormalities aren't the perfect way to describe it, but the PR intervals are going to be between that 0.12 to 0.2 seconds. And the QRS is going to be 0.06 to 0.1 seconds. It's important to keep those in mind, but right here, I just kind of want to talk through the descriptions of these these rhythms, and then you can go into Google and kind of take a look and see what these look like on an actual EKG strip. But when we're looking at sinus rhythm, so normal sinus rhythm, this is a rhythm originating in the heart's normal pacemaker, the SA node with a rate of 60 to 100 beats per minute. When we're looking at sinus bradycardia, all you need to know is that this is a rate slower than 60 beats per minute. So normal sinus rhythm and sinus bradycardia, the only difference between the two is bradycardia less than 60 beats per minute. Next, sinus tachycardia. The only difference between this and normal sinus rhythm is that it's greater than 100 beats per minute. So right there, normal sinus rhythm 60 to 100. If it's slower than 60, it's bradycardia. If it's faster than 100, tachycardia. Looking at sinus arrhythmia, this is a rhythm originating in the heart's normal pacemaker, again the SA node, with a regular rate that varies with respiration. The common thing that you'll see in this is that as a person inspires, their heart rate's going to increase, and as they expire, it's going to decrease. A way that I had remembered that for exams was just inspiration will cause an increase in my heart rate, and then opposite for expiration. Sinus arrest. So this is a very sick SA node that ceases pacemaking completely. This results in a pause in the electrical activity seen on EKG, And I believe I'd gone over this briefly in in another episode, that sinus arrest, this is gonna be when the pause is greater than three seconds or greater than 15 large boxes. And then a sinus pause differentiating between those two would be a pause that's less than three seconds long. That was just one of them though, the sinus arrest. Sinus pause I just threw in there additionally. And then the last one is sinus exit block. This is very much similar to sinus arrest, but there's one important distinction the duration of time with this arrhythmia is in a direct multiple of the R to R interval of the underlying arrhythmia. I will say it's really hard to kind of talk through what this looks like. I'd really just keep in mind that if this is coming up on an exam of some kind of description, whether it's just you know during your didactic year or an EOR or something, if it's talking about a direct multiple of an R to R interval of the underlying rhythm, that's gonna be sinus exit block. For all of these, I'd absolutely go and make sure that you look at some images of an EKG. This is where some kind of YouTube video is probably gonna be a lot more helpful, um, but I think it's important to talk about on here as well. Uh, again, I'm just gonna list those six. So the six sinus rhythms are gonna be normal sinus rhythm, sinus bradycardia, sinus tachycardia, sinus arrhythmia, sinus arrest, and sinus exit block. Next, we can go into ventricular tachycardia. Ventricular tachycardia, or VTAC, is a frequent complication of a couple different heart conditions, and that's gonna be acute myocardial infarction and dilated cardiomyopathy. When we dive a little bit deeper into VTAC, we can talk about it being monomorphic and polymorphic. When we talk about it being polymorphic, that really means many shapes. So when you look at an EKG of a polymorphic VTAC, you see this multiple shape kind of pattern where it's consistently lining up with an EKG that looks like ventricular tachycardia. But there's these changes in how high each of those peaks are and how low they go as well. Again, these are a little bit difficult to be wanting to talk through. But I think there's important things that can be uh, discussed. And there's some key words that we might learn during this. But no matter what, you absolutely need to look at EKGs for this as well. So that's polymorphic tach- uh, ventricular tachycardia. Looking at monomorphic, it's just going to be much more uniform. So we can see that there's uh, this consistency in the rhythm, and and the peaks and the lows are going to be very very similar to each other. When we look at monomorphic VTAC, it's going to be from some kind of reentrant or focal cause as a sign of that ventricular tachycardia, whereas a multifocal cause would be a sign of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. We do get concerned that VTAC could potentially transform into V fib, which is ventricular fibrillation. When we're looking at either monomorphic or polymorphic VTAC, we can also decide between whether or not it is sustained or non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. It's going to be defined as sustained if the duration of that rhythm is going on for 30 seconds or longer. And then uh, concern absolutely can be that VTAC would turn into ventricular fibrillation, which is what I'll go over next. Clinical manifestations of VTAC is going to be chest pain, dyspnea, Hypotension and altered level of consciousness. Other clinical manifestations can for sure occur as well, but these are what you're going to see most likely in an unstable patient. Diagnosis, of course, it's going to be an EKG, and what you'll see is a ventricular rhythm with at least three consecutive ventricular beats that is faster than normal. The QRS is going to be very wide, so greater or around 200 milliseconds. And again, this lines up with what I had said in a previous episode that. If the beats are coming from the atria, it's going to be a narrow QRS. If it's from the ventricle, like this, it's going to be a wide QRS. Looking at treatment, if the patient's hemodynamically stable, we can go right into amiodarone. And then there's kind of this stepwise order that you go into to treat these patients. In a hemodynamically stable patient, you're going to treat them with amiodarone. And then there's two other medications to keep in mind if you're asked, well, what if amiodarone doesn't work? Then you'd go on to lidocaine. Well, what if lidocaine doesn't work? Then you'd go on to So you want to keep in mind that uh, in that order, you'd start off with amiodarone and then go on to lidocaine and then go on to procainamide. In a patient that's hemodynamically unstable with monomorphic ventricular tachycardia, you're gonna wanna treat them with a synchronized direct current cardioversion. If the patient is hemodynamically unstable with a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, you're gonna wanna treat them with unsynchronized direct current cardioversion. After a normal rhythm has been acquired, there's going to be steps taken next depending on severity. One of those steps might be an antiarrhythmic or will most likely be an antiarrhythmic, and that's going to be a beta blocker. That'll be your first choice. You can also do amiodarone, but beta blockers are first choice. Depending on the patient's presentation and how they're doing, you might actually uh, decide to go on to do some kind of ICD, which is uh, implantable cardioverter defibrillator. And then you also might look to do a catheter ablation, especially if you can find these multiple areas that are causing this ventricular tachycardia to start. You might end up just needing to do a catheter ablation and get rid of those problem areas. When we look at using amiodarone potentially as that antiarrhythmic medication, there's a couple different endocrine side effect disorders that we want to keep in mind. So, hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism can actually. Uh, occur when amiodarone is used long term so this is just one other reason that beta blockers are going to be the first choice and then when we're looking again at procainamide being one of those other medications that was used in hemodynamically stable patients right so we were looking at using amiodarone first and then it was going to be lidocaine and then procainamide so procainamide, this can actually cause a drug-induced lupus-type eruption. So this is why we start off using amiodarone, one, because it's more effective, and then lidocaine, and then last time would be procainamide. In those situations, in those hemodynamically stable patients, if amiodarone does the trick and you don't need to go on to the other two, then don't, you know, we're just, we're just trying to get it under control in that sense. Talking about this now, I'm more just trying to kind of keep it in my mind, keep it in our minds that these are the reasons why these other medications are first choice. Like amiodarone isn't first choice for the antiarrhythmic, you know, one of the reasons being the hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. So we want to use beta blockers first as that antiarrhythmic and then Amiodarone will be the first choice in the hemodynamically stable patients, as opposed to something like procanamide because this could cause that drug-induced lupus eruption. Moving on next, we can go into ventricular fibrillation. This is an uncoordinated quivering of the ventricle with no useful contractions. I'd love it if I could just show a picture of this right now, because sometimes the picture is just worth a thousand words. Really, it just looks totally unorganized. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as to what's going on. And if you see something like that, you're either thinking ventricular fibrillation or what we'll go over next, which is torsades to point. But look online, just look up ventricular fibrillation EKG, and you'll kind of get this understanding of uncoordinated quivering of the ventricle. And none of those contractions are useful in any way. Like they're not pushing blood through the, through the body at all. It, it just, it's almost causing this pooling to occur. Looking at clinical manifestations. So these patients are absolutely unstable, right? If blood's not pumping, they're not going to be stable. So this will be things like chest pain, dizziness, nausea, palpitations, shortness of breath. And in my own mind, if your heart's not pumping, whatever else you think he might be feeling, these patients probably feeling it. So not, not a good, not a good thing to see on any EKG. When we're looking at treatment, this is where we need to be thinking about our CPR training. Uh, it starts off right with calling for help and starting CPR. So you'll start the CPR and then defibrillate once that AED comes along or if you're in the hospital. But you're going to defibrillate after that arrives. After defibrillation, you go in for you know five cycles or two minutes worth of 30 by two. After that, you're going to do a rhythm check and then defibrillate. If they're still not coming back after that, you're going to do a dose of epinephrine. After that, you're going to go right back into your five cycles of 30 by two for two more minutes. After that, you might be considering amiodarone. And then you really just do that circle over and over again. So CPR, recheck, defibrillate, epinephrine, CPR, uh, recheck, defibrillate, maybe amiodarone. Really CPR, that's when this really comes into play. You're thinking about ventricular fibrillation. That's the treatment for this. You may be asked a question about what the initial dose of epinephrine is going to look like. It's going to be One milligram IV bolus epinephrine every three to five minutes. And then when you're looking at amiodarone, it can be given at the two minute mark and the four minute mark. And then after you give those two doses of the amiodarone, you're done. No more of that. You can only be reusing the epinephrine after those two doses. If the patient does not follow commands after return of spontaneous circulation occurs, or ROSC, lowering their core body temperature to 32 to 36 degrees Celsius can actually improve clinical outcomes. Uh, That was a question that had come up for me in my EOR. Um, So, you know, hopefully that helps anybody if you happen to come across that. Uh, It seems like kind of an oddball, but yeah, if they're... If their heart rates come back or or if they've got that ROSC return of spontaneous circulation and you're trying to figure out what you can do next, it's actually going to be lowering the body temperature. That's going to improve the clinical outcomes in the long term. After the patient has been stabilized, um, the treatment that's going to occur afterwards is going to be an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. So just having an ICD. And then uh, the most critical determinant of survival for ventricular fibrillation is going to be the time to rhythm analysis and defibrillation. So if you're asked a question about what's going to be the most, you know, important thing, deciding how well they're going to do or their survival of being uh, put into a ventricular fibrillation on an EKG, or, you know, you're assessing that an EKG, the, the main thing, the most critical determinant of a patient surviving is going to be um, how quickly we can uh, identify it and defibrillate and begin the treatment being really CPR. Lastly, we can finish off by going through torsades as a point. So this rhythm is rapid with irregular QRS complexes, which appear to be twisting around the ECG baseline or the EKG baseline. It literally means twisting around a peak. Torsades is actually a very specific type of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, and it's uh, occurring in patients with long QT. So if a patient has long QT, we get concerned that they might actually develop or uh, go into having torsades at point at some point. There are a few different medications that can cause long QT, or it may be secondary to the use of these medications. Uh, And this could be antiarrhythmics, antibiotics like macrolides, antipsychotics like haloperidol, antidepressants like TCAs, and antiemetics like Zofran. Uh, The mnemonic I've heard for this is ABCDE. So A, antiarrhythmics, B, antibiotics, C, you're going to take antipsychotics, but spell it with a C. So A N T I C Y C H O T I C S. So antipsychotics. D will be antidepressants, and E is anti emetics. So that's a, a kind of a nice way to, to memorize what, what medications might be causing or putting a patient into some long QT that would cause them to develop torsades. Torsades may cease spontaneously or kind of just degenerate into ventricular fibrillation, which isn't good in itself, but it has the potential to do that. A common historical factor in patients who develop torsades is actually alcohol abuse. So alcohol abuse can cause an electrolyte imbalance, specifically hypomagnesemia, which predisposes patients to be at risk for long QT, which then in turn puts patients at risk for developing torsades. Common clinical manifestations at the onset of torsades would be this wasting appearance, just looking very weak, Uh, a patient who's just been very unresponsive for a short period of time, like one minute or so, and then this drastically decreased blood pressure during that time at the onset of torsades. Because if the heart isn't pumping properly, then it's not going to be able to increase any kind of blood pressure, so it's going to cause that drastic decrease in the blood pressure during that time. The initial treatment or the treatment for torsades is going to be IV magnesium. That's such a bored question that I've seen so far in my didactic year exams and then on EORs as well. Torsades, you're going to see IV magnesium as the treatment. The best initial management for a patient with torsades who's hemodynamically unstable, is going to be unsynchronized cardioversion or that's just defibrillation. But if you're asked and one of the options is IV magnesium for the treatment of torsades, that's that's going to be the best choice. Not the best going through all of these just because uh, it makes a lot more sense to be able to look at the image of what the EKG or ECG actually looks like. But hopefully just hearing some of those maybe keywords or, or parts that stuck out a little bit better or treatments uh, is going to be helpful to anybody who's listening. But really, I'd say there's some great YouTube videos out there that I had looked at myself to be able to understand these arrhythmias a little bit better uh, and just to be able to see them. Because the more you see them, the easier it's going to be able to recognize them when you see them in the future. And that's going to be really, really important. So um, hope this helps and we'll see you next time.